We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And when you hear the term political convulsions, it probably makes you think of the Republican Party in the fall of 2016 America. Manipulating fear for political gain, no matter the actual consequences. Again, sounds like the Republican Party here in America. And again, about 30% of the population looking for a right-wing authoritarian dictator to bring stability. Big banks with tremendous power causing real economic hardship, yet remaining untouched by the overwhelming will of the people. Yep, that's America. Actually, we're talking about Spain. Yes, Spain. It's actually so messy these days that they've held a number of snap elections in the past couple of years, yet they continue to live in Spain with no working government. The rich and powerful remain rich and powerful. The unemployment rate remains very high and corruption continues unabated. In short, Spain is a beautiful, proud country with a great long tradition and history, and it's been in a real mess politically for quite a while. Is the old left up to the task? Will the country break up into new, smaller nations? Will the Francoist authoritarian right slip back into power? What about the unelected power of the banks? Does it indicate for the, what does it indicate for the future of Europe and the world's political future? Well, it's a little bit off the beaten path, but it's important and it affects us all. Our guest today is Thomas Harrington, professor of Hispanic studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, where he teaches courses on 20th and 21st century Spanish cultural history, literature, and film. He's also a frequent commentator on political and cultural affairs in the United States and abroad. Thank you, Thomas Harrington, for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. I'm delighted to be here with you, Bert. Well, I had the unique pleasure of visiting Spain. I had wanted to go there for quite some time, being a student of the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. And I got to uh, visit the northeast region of Catalonia. This was last June. Uh, Though here and there there were reminders of the awful bloodletting and fascist dictatorship resulting from the Civil War of the 1930s, it's a beautiful country. Spain, Barcelona, Catalonia, the Basque area, with real character and a multifaceted culture. Yet, as I understand it, they are functioning without a government. How can you function without a government? What's that like, and, and how long has it been like this? It's been going on for about, let me, let me count the uh, months. Uh, we're going almost to nine months without a government. There were elections last uh, December, 
which proved inconclusive in terms of coming uh, coming up with a working governing coalition. They were repeated in June of uh, this year, and again, the parties were unable to uh, come to an agreement. Uh, it looks as if we're on the verge of having a government uh, put in place. By The socialists are going to abstain on the vote for investiture, as they call it, in Spain, for the conservative government. So in effect, there'll be a continuity of political power after several years of, of right-wing leadership, even though the majority of the country seems to be questioning the legitimacy of that leadership, it looks like they're going to eke out yet another term in office. And uh, so it's been a strange situation. I spend a lot of time over in Spain, and uh, people are kind of resigned. I think one of the great things we see, or one of the terrible things we see nowadays, is the power of the media combined with the political class to beat people down to the point where they expect very little from their political uh, mm. class. That sounds and uh, I think this is not accidental. I think this is quite well thought of. And it, uh, Spain, which as recently as 10 or 15 years ago, you'd go there and you feel a palpable sense of the civic participation. Um, you don't feel that anymore. People are beaten down, and they just say, well, what can we do? Mm. Yeah, it does, it does sound familiar here. The, the, the powers that be here in the United States have... I think pretty clearly intended for us, we the people, to feel powerless and to accept our powerlessness so that they can remain in their power and, and we feel beaten down. I wonder how it affects the, the general mood. I mean, if people feel beaten down, it doesn't exactly uh, encourage uh, good feelings and, and happy times. Does it affect people, do you think, or do they just pff, kind of resign to it? Well, don't forget, this is a society that is has only had democratic expectations for about 35 years, maybe a little longer. And so there's a sense of resignation before power that comes out of historical roots. So people are not as agitated as you might think. One of the great secrets of Spanish culture is the, the shock-absorbing effect of, of social relations, the family. Uh, in the 1980s, uh, as the the new democratic government was taking shape, there was also very high unemployment. And people just kind of batten down the hatches and make do. Um, what's one of the more schizophrenic things is if you go to a place, one of the big cities, a place like uh, Barcelona or Madrid or Bilbao, you don't sense the misery. <laughs> it's not announcing itself to you. Uh, but then you look at the statistics and... Uh, Definitely things are, are going badly. I think the biggest problem is the loss of hope for an entire new generation of young people. These are the people that grew up in democracy and considered it normative. They're really the first people under 35. Are they really the first people that, that saw themselves fully as Democrats in the, in the small d sense and as Europeans? And they just assumed that it was going to work out. And now the rug has been pulled out from under them. Wow. Hmm. Interesting. It sounds uh, somewhat familiar. We have a very, very large uh, group of millennials, young people here. Will they participate? I think they've kind of had, in a way, expectations lowered, but then they were raised up quite a bit with the uh, terribly exciting uh, campaign of Bernie Sanders. And now, I don't know, I think a lot of them are just kind of giving up and forgetting about politics. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today is uh, Thomas Harrington, professor of 
Hispanic studies at Trinity College. We're talking about uh, the situation in Spain right now, the political, cultural situation, mainly political, I guess. And Europe is, you know, it affects the entire world. We are affected by Europe. I mean, we, we are west of Europe, but we never got west of history, as some people would have liked. We, we are very much uh, in tune with what happens in Europe. And countries like Spain, Portugal, Greece, and Italy have been at effect of decisions made by what's called the Troika, centered in Brussels and Berlin. Painful austerity has been imposed from the top down. What is this Troika? How have their demands affected the people of Spain? And and what has the traditional Spanish left, the Socialist Party, uh, done about this this power, which, you know, it's like this uh, all across the world, the power of uh, the big banks, the IMF, the World Bank, things like that. What, what's the Spanish left doing about it, and, and how is it affected? They're Spain? all great questions. The, the Troika is a, is a combination of representatives from the European Commission, uh, the European Central Bank, and the International Monetary Fund. Uh, a key role in that is played by Germany as, as the economic driver of Europe. But I think in a broader and more depressing sense, it shows the transformation of the European Union from a project that was extremely exciting that was really based in the idea of the post-war social democratic consensus having been hijacked by by banks um, I think one of the big stories that doesn't get told in our coverage of uh, the European crisis is the fact that these banks were quite willing to lend lots of money to the European South uh, that it was seen as an exciting new market. For example, I can remember when in Spain no one had a mortgage. And then I all of a sudden started having friends that had these huge mortgages. And so money was being handed out. Spain was considered a golden, golden boy of Europe because it has a nice big market of some 40 million people. And German capital flowed into Spain, or, or European capital, but German capital funneled by Europe. And it really made a big difference in Spanish life. Infrastructure improved. Uh, Spain, I watched it before my eyes, become a, a, a real uh, first-class, first-world place. Wow. Um, and then debt became a problem. A housing uh, boom was inflated. A, a housing bubble was inflated. And then when that came crashing down, the strange ideology of austerity, which uh-huh. everyone knows doesn't work, uh, do it anyway. in Europe. And so what you basically have now is a troika representing these large, these unelected uh, power centers acting as enforcers for northern European banks who want to get their capital back. And the people... The expense of, of, of people in, in, a, in a huge way. Uh, to give you a concrete example, my, my colleagues in the university over there, some have told me they've seen a 25% reduction in their actual acquisitive uh, power. Wow. Uh, so people have seen hmm. rollbacks in their actual earnings. They've seen rollbacks in public services. Students have seen uh, rate hikes in their university fees and a long, long list of problems. Yeah, that whole austerity thing, it's amazing how it doesn't work, yet uh, these uh, the big banks keep on doing it. I mean, it sort of works. They get their money short-term, but, boy, I, I would think for long-term you know, good business climate, you want economic stability. And that austerity does kind of the opposite of that. It seems like, you know, there's there's Northern Europe and Southern Europe. And Southern Europe, Greece, uh, Spain, Portugal, 
they are, again, at effect. One, one big difference between the U.S. and Spain, there are, of course, many, but a lot of similarities. Unlike the U.S., there are a lot of parties in Spain, political parties. And if I understand it correctly, there have been two main parties in power since the welcome death of the dictator Franco in 1975. There's the mainline socialist party, and, uh, you know, it's not, the word socialist is not such a big deal everywhere in the world except here. Uh, that's the PSOE, I believe, and the party on the right, the People's Party, and along with a number of other smaller parties. But in 2014, a significant new party, Podemos, meaning, is it yes we can or together we can, mm-hmm. something like that. Podemos has risen quickly with a vibrant new rather young leader, Pablo Iglesias, ponytail fellow, I believe. What is Podemos, yep. and how did it come to be? Well, let's back up a, a little bit. The, you, to understand the current politics in Spain, you have to understand what is often referred to in Spain as the transition to democracy. Uh. What that took place between the death of Franco in 1975, and depending on how you define it, was ended uh, by the election of Felipe González and the Socialist Party, in the fall of 1982. But people talk about it in very flexible, the, the back end of it has many flexible dates. Some people say it went on to 92. But it was basically the idea of creating a democratic culture out of what had been a rigidly one-party state. And uh, the socialists quickly emerged, then a young group of people in the 80s, as the rival to the re- remixed uh, group of Francoists that formed the Spanish right. There were a group of Francoists that said, okay, democracy, or at least the appearance thereof, is something we have to engage in. And in the 80s, we saw kind of a a socialist hegemony, 82 to actually 96, and that was a time when Spain really uh, saw dramatic improvements in its quality of life. And again, a lot of that coming through European Union adhesion funds. And Felipe Gonzalez, the head of the, the Spanish Socialist Party, oversaw that. In time, corruption began to bring down that socialist party, and in 1996, the the popular party, under the leadership of a new younger man who happened to be the son of a Francoist uh, propagandist, mm. uh, remodeled the, the 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 popular party and began to take on with it several of the the um, techniques of the American right, and yeah. they really aimed at media control, which has been one of the keys to their success. So we get that in, we get into the crisis time of uh, of the the early 2000 2008 the socialists were back in power at that time with a, a man named Zapatero and who was trying to do a sort of third way socialism uh. and uh the the housing crisis fell upon him and since that time we've had the 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 popular party back in control none of them have been able to do anything to stop the crisis uh, in fact, uh, to the Socialist Party, to its ever-loving shame, uh, voted a, an express change to the Constitution in 2011, which made debt reduction uh, a key element of the Spanish Constitution. Oh. And they did that directly under the pressure of German banks. Uh, so it was out of this mix that uh, this sense mm. of impotence before the powers of the European Union that were taking away people's living, that Podemos grew out of the the uh the the movements similar to wall street uh occupy wall street occupy wall street that took place in madrid beginning in 2011 hmm. and it was pablo iglesias the uh 
the young college professor, professor of communications, if I'm not mistaken, who launched the party with a group of other young people. Basically, they were trying to point out the fact that the Socialist Party had become morally, morally and politically bankrupt. Mm. If we go back to Felipe Gonzalez's time, he ran as a socialist, but he quickly capitulated to, for example, Spanish uh, membership in NATO. He quickly capitulated uh. to a very prominent role for big capital within Spain. So the the uh. Uh, you can almost look at it as a thirty year um, mm. thirty year trial, uh, thirty year trail of betrayal. <laughs> and finally, uh, Iglesias and his group said enough. This is for a group of older people who've already profited. We need to have a younger party that is going to take on the questions of political power and economic power at their roots. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, other formerly left parties that uh, kind of sold their soul to the devil, uh, like <laughs> the Labour Party in England has you know, mm-hmm. had a long traditional fairly standard left tradition and then uh, with Tony Blair he wasn't left at all that's i guess that's the the third way and uh that's Zapatero Zapatero was the prime minister from 2004 to uh 2012 if memory serves and he was trying to do the third way and he mm. came out with some appealing image uh, mm. positions but when it came down to addressing the issues of 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 actual financial and political power he he largely folded Interesting, and and one can frankly see the uh, American Democratic Party, uh, you know, the, the old party, the traditionalists like myself, who uh, you know believe in Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal and and that there is a place for government. And under the Clintons in the nineteen nineties, they uh, kind of capitulated as well to yet again that that third way thing. And so young people, well, we know what happened here in America with young people. They. Uh, kind of abandoned that, and and uh, I think they're, they're having sort of a, I don't know if they call it a, a Dexit or something, a, an exit from the Democratic Party, like they had uh, a, a Brexit uh, England. So th- there are similarities. Of course, there's differences, but there are similarities. And the, the People's Party, again, that, that sort of right-leaning party, I mean, they're not uh, fascist, uh, right, uh, Franco, I would think, but you write that the People's Party has borrowed from Karl Rove's playbook, uh, tell us about that, please. Well, if you look at the American right, and, and, and you've probably heard of the Powell Powell memo. I don't know if you have, but uh, refresh my memory. In the late seventy, in the mid seventy, early seventy, excuse me, uh, Lewis Powell, who later became a Supreme Court justice uh-huh, under uh-huh. under Nixon, wrote a memo yes. for the American Chamber of Commerce, in which he basically uh-huh. outlined how we can take back control of this country from what was in effect too much democracy taking place everywhere and it was a it was an outline for how one can take back the country for the elites and media control was a, a huge part of it uh-huh. and if you look at the powell memo it's it's an absolutely fascinating docu- document available online you can see they've done almost everything in it and that it has worked i think both of us are old enough to remember or have seen to have witnessed the transformation in media and the the narrowing of the band of acceptable thought on American media. It's just been extraordinary. And this is what Aznar uh, and his new popular party, which took office in 1996, set out to do. And they were very successful at it. For example, El Mundo was established as a paper to stand up to El País, which had been the traditional socialist 
modern newspaper equivalent in many ways to the New York Times mm-hmm. during the 80s and 90s. They began to uh, instrumentalize the Catholic Bishops' Conference radio network, the COPE, and it became a, uh, a network of fire-breathing, right-wing uh, mm-hmm. uh, vituperation, just like Fox News here. And the sad thing is, this stuff works. Yes. The entire political spectrum, under the pressure of devoted uh, right-wing fire-breathers, moves right. And that's what's happened in Spain. El País now, which was a great uh, liberal paper, socialist paper, mm-hmm. I mean, you read it now, and it's uh, rehashing and assume, working on the assumptions that the, the right works on in terms of markets and in terms of looking at other issues, such as the problem of Spain's internal diversity, which we'll probably talk about in a bit. Well, let's uh, actually go straight to the internal diversity. Uh, you know, in June, I was fortunate enough to be a tourist in Barcelona, which is in the Catalonia region. Uh, and listeners to this show tend to be pretty well informed and may know of the push for that region to become independent. Some Catalonians go so far as to call for it to become a separate nation. Apparently, we have Franco to blame for that as he banned the speaking of the Catalonian language and repressed the culture, kind of like Americans did with the uh, Native American culture here, just made it basically illegal. From your article in Commonweal, it appears that the banking interests in Brussels and Berlin exerted pressure to keep this movement down. Is there fear that, that such secessionist movement could spread? And, and what is the, the status of the Catalan independence movement now? Is it related to, uh, to the Brexit? Are they, the powers that be uh, must be concerned about uh, further uh, independence. I mean, Scotland could go independent. What about that? And, uh, you know, it's again a complex issue, and I'd like to back up a little bit. First of all, at the risk of sounding school marmish, we've got to be careful about nomenclature when we talk about Catalonia. You refer to it as a region, and of course, region implies that it's a smaller part of something bigger. Uh, Many Catalans bristle at the use of the term region. They say Uh we're a nation, a cultural nation that happens to exist within a state called Spain. It was in order not to use the term region nor the term nation that when the democratic constitution of 1978 was created, they had to invent a new term, and they're called autonomous communities. Uh And so these autonomous communities were created in the 78 constitution, but were given very vague uh, competencies. You no know, one was clear what was theirs and what belonged to the central government. And uh, over the years, the Catalans began to, little by little, take on greater amounts of power, and very successfully in the 1980s, and built a society where what they consider, or many of them consider, their national language, Catalan, was put in the forefront. School, schooling was done in Catalan. Uh, uh, university study is done in Catalan. And it would be, uh, I think, uh, an exaggeration to say that this all has to do with Franco. Catalonia's identity goes back a thousand years. Um, It comes out of the fact that Fernando Ferran married Isabel and created Spain. And it was the Aragonese crown, which was, in effect, Catalan, uh, that that had had a separate way of running its affairs for many, many years. And uh, that was begin was suppressed beginning in the 18th century, oh. and reemerged at the beginning of the 20th century as Catalonia became a more uh, modern, 
an industrialized part of Spain. And they begin to say, well, if we're more modern and more more industrialized, why should we listen to Madrid under the model of a centralized government? So this has deep, deep roots. Um, mm-hmm. And the question is, what is the best way to, to, to work it out? The Catalans are by nature what they call pactists. They have a pactist tradition. They like to make pacts. They're businessmen. They're merchants from the Mediterranean. And they thought they had a deal in, 19, in 2006 to give them a new statute of autonomy, which would give them more powers. That deal was uh, basically invalidated by a very manipulated Supreme Court. And it is a result of that, that, that manipulated negation by the Supreme Court that the present uh, movement kicked into high gear in 2011 and 2012. So they tried to make a deal with Madrid that they felt would safeguard their financial and cultural interests, and there was no negotiation. Uh, even after the law passed the Congress, it was, it was invalidated by a Supreme Court that was clearly corrupt. So it's it's a complex situation. Uh, as for the financials and as for its, its this this problem within Europe, um, Catalans want to be Europeans. They have. I had an interview with the former Catalan president Artur Mas not long ago, and at the end I asked him, "Well, will someday Catalans go around Europe with Catalan passports?" He says, "Well, I don't know about Catalan passports, but I want them to have European passports." So Catalonia is a uh, ardently uh, Europeanist. Uh, state and and Paul Stieglitz recently said in a visit to Barcelona that it's perfectly uh, viable financially. Hmm. So uh, it's not a problem so much for Catalonia; it's a problem for what will Spain be uh-huh. without Catalonia? Right, and that goes beyond mere economics to uh, big questions of identity formation that go way back into Spanish history. The idea that there was one language, which was Spanish or Castilian. Mm-hmm and that that was to be supreme over the others. And the Catalans simply say, no, right. <laughs> we have our own language, we have our own traditions, and we want them respected. So I don't think Europe has a lot to, has a lot to fear from Catalonia. Um, one of the big problems is that the Spanish government, the Catalans have asked, let us have a referendum. And the Spanish government, especially this conservative one, but it goes across the, the board, has said, no, we won't negotiate anything about a referendum. And so they're forced ever more into, strident, uh, into a strident posture, which a lot of them didn't have as recently as seven or eight years ago. Interesting. Interesting. We're talking about uh, Spain, and a lot of people uh, may not be aware that, that the European countries now are really only relatively recent creations. I mean, Italy, Germany only came together in the late uh, 19th century, and I'm not sure when... Spain came together as a a country. I mean, and I I wonder about. It, it, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I I wonder about uh, you know just putting it in in American type terms. Here in the U.S., there are different regions, and I understand that uh, term was not popular in Catalonia, but there are different areas and have very different cultural and political values. For example, the North favors such socially liberal things as reproductive rights and equality for all, including sexual orientation. But in the old Confederacy, those old white Protestant male-dominated values remain powerful. They don't want our values imposed on them. And we in the North are not crazy about their values. The South tried to become independent, 
but were forced militarily to remain with the rest of the currently United States. As a result, the culture war continues unabated. Is there any kind of parallel for that in Spain, or is it really different? Yes and no. Um, I think, again, it's, it revolves around the, the definition of region. Uh-huh. We all speak the same language. Yes. Uh, we all share in a sort of uh, hyper-American patriotism. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In Catalonia, I mean, I'll give you an example. When a lot of the Spanish uh, World Cup winning uh, uh, soccer team of a few years back were Catalans. It was basically the Barcelona Football Club playing for the national team. Well, the Spanish the Spanish anthem would come on before the games, and American friends, I was sitting there saying, "Why aren't they singing their national anthem?" Uh-huh. Because that national anthem came out of Francoism, was imposed upon the people after the transition to democracy, and these Catalans would wouldn't be, you know, if they're nationalists, not all of them are, but a lot of them are, would not be caught dead uh, singing that song. Uh-huh. Um, the 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 fullback on the team, BK PK, who's married to Shakira, ah. uh, he's been in trouble because you know people accuse him of not being patriotic enough. Basically, there's a, there's a mentality which has been really fomented in the Madrid press over the last 10 years that basically says to the Catalans, we don't want to hear what you're talking about. Huh. We, we want you to be good Spaniards, and we want you to prove it. And we don't want to hear this stuff about independence because, oh, you know, that's all about the wealthy in Catalonia just wanting to get wealthier. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot more complex than that. And and. One of the things that's really been terrible in all of this is the failure of the Spanish left, as opposed to the Catalan left, the Spanish left, including Podemos, to offer anything to Catalonia in terms of a greater sense of self-determination. And this is a long tradition. Basically, Spain has oscillated between an idea of Spain as a nation of nations or Spain as a unitary nation. And this tension has been in Spain through those 500 years since Fernando Ferdinand married Isabel and created the coming together of Aragon and Castile. This tension has generally been, uh, what, this, this in confrontation has generally been won by the Unitarians. Mm-hmm. And what is troubling is that these Unitarians include the left. One of the reasons why Podemos has seemed to stall out is that in terms of sympathy for its leftist positions, the greatest source of votes is Catalonia. However, Podemos has failed to make any meaningful uh, offering to greater Catalan autonomy. So Podemos is stuck within its own orthodoxy of centralism, which it, which it shares, strangely enough, with the uh, Popular Party. So there's a broad, broad unitarian front in Madrid, and yet... If the left is going to go anywhere in Spain to defeat the right, it needs Catalan votes. And yet that left is refusing to give the Catalans anything more of what they want. Mm. Hence, Catalan parties are saying enough. The dialogue's over. We'll create, we have our own political culture to begin with. We'll just, uh, we'll just run with it and, and run our country according to the values we have, which we see as distinct from those of, uh, of the rest of Spain. Yeah, and... And it must put Podemos in a very, very difficult spot because they obviously want to appeal to the Catalonians and connect with them, but they're for a centralized unitarian government, correct? Correct, and that's... I fault them for this, frankly. I, I, I think they've been... Uh, I think they've been lacking in courage uh, oh. on this issue. Huh. Um, 
it really wouldn't be too much to say to Spain, hey, look, even back as in the 80s, we, were, we conceived of ourselves as a nation of nations. And many of us on the left thought that's what we were moving toward until 1996 when the pushback began from the old traditional right. And why don't we go back to that? Why don't we talk again about a federalist Spain? But the media machine mm. in Madrid is so strong on anything that smacks of giving more power to Catalonia or the Basque country that the politicians that. simply won't stand up to it. And, and, and I, think, uh, I think we're seeing that with the stagnation of Podemos that this has been a big mistake on their part. Yeah, I was going to ask about the Basque separatist movement that got a lot of press here for a really long time. A couple of decades, there was all this Basque uh, bombings, quite frankly. And I wonder how, how much that has played out. You know, it's like, ooh, look what happened to them. Uh, what about the Basque? I mean, I my sense is, and you know a heck of a lot more about this than I do, that the, that the Basque independence movement uh, ain't really happening now. What, how, what's the Basque influence on the whole Catalonian independence thing? It depends on who you talk to. Yeah. This same media infrastructure in Madrid has been often tried to conflate the two movements. Uh, and that the, the purpose of that being sure. to... Discredit. Just insinuate that the Catalan movement will, will lead us to the type of violence that existed in the Basque country. Uh -huh. their, their histories are completely different in that sense. Catalan national identity has never, uh, Catalan nationalism has never been violent, with, uh, outside of a couple of one bombing in the 1980s, but it's always been a civic movement. And one of the things that makes it so interesting and attractive, it is to me a very bright spot on a Europe where democracy is dying, you see a, a citizen-driven movement that always talks about peace, civic identity, civic movements, inclusion of all people. The Basque movement was, was very different and is very different. Basque concepts of national identity are rooted in much more of a, a tribalist, if, you, if you'll allow me to ah, use that sure. term. Yeah, why not? Uh, no longer, but the founding of Basque identity back at the end of the, the eight, 19, uh, 19th century had clear tribalist and racialist overtones. Ooh. It's outgrown that, but it's much more clannish. And it's also impeded by the fact that Basque is a very difficult language to learn. Yeah. And if we consider that language is a key part of a national movement, sure. uh, its ability to basketize the population is much much less than the Catalan ability to Catalanize the population. Hmm. A Spanish speaker who lives in Catalonia can learn Catalan fairly easily. So they're they're very different. The Basque movement at this point seems to be in a sort of uh, breathing space uh, hmm. after years of strife and years of hatred and years of uh, angst in in the Basque country. I just was there not long ago. Uh, they're beginning to say, okay, we have peace. There's been a, the, 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 the movement, ETA, has, has, has stepped down. They're now working through their political arm, which is Bildu, and they're winning local governments. Uh, and there's, sense to be, there's a sense of, let's not rock the boat. We're doing okay. Uh -huh. uh, different from the Catalans, the Basque negotiated uh, an agreement in the 78 after the 78 Constitution to keep their tax money, and then give it to Madrid. Whereas the Catalans give all of their money to Madrid and then have to ask for it back. And so the Basques are, Basque country is a very prosperous place right now. It has heavy industry and people are living well. 
you can see it in the infrastructure of the place, and people are saying, okay, let's take a breather. And the, the current leader of the Basque Nationalist Party, Urkuyu, is a very moderate guy, and he, he wants to, I think, let people breathe and heal. Yeah, interesting. I, I happened to be just briefly when I was there in June in, in the Basque country, and boy, is that a different language. It's, it reminded me of Russian or something, man, just nothing <laughs> like the rest of the language there. And very prosperous place, no question about that. Let's look at the electoral differences and similarities to the U.S. We, of course, in the U.S. have regularly scheduled elections the first Tuesday after the first Monday of the month in uh, November. We have regularly scheduled elections. How does it work in Spain? Are they just is is it more like uh, the British system where it can just be called yeah. at any time? It's it's a parliamentary system. They have a term of government for the parliament, which is four years, but that term of government can be can be interrupted by uh, by the failure of a government or the calling of an election. But then that new parliament will have another four years. So basically a parliamentary system where the majority party rules, and in the absence of a majority party, uh, which is to say an absolute majority, they're forced to create coalitions, which is what we have going on now. The popular party in these last two elections lost their absolute majority. And so now, after having run roughshod over people <laughs> for several years when they had a, an absolute majority, they're now being forced to create relationships that they've uh -huh. never had. And people are saying, we don't want to uh, be with you. You're corrupt. You're authoritarian. But as I think you mentioned earlier, there's always 30% of the population, it seems, in most countries who exactly want that. Uh, so that's what we have in Spain. And, and the big question that has been over these last months without a government, who will, um, who will make a deal? Uh, There's a new party of the right that came up at the same time as the Podemos came up, and it's uh -huh. called Ciudadanos, Citizens Party. And no one really knows exactly what they stand for, except that they're a younger version of the, the popular party. Mm. So they're equally right-wing, uh, but they have a young, uh, actually Catalan, strangely enough, leader, who's very anti-Catalan, uh. Rivera, who heads them. And there would be a logical marriage between those two parties, but the PP sees them as a rival down the road, so they don't want to legitimate them too much. Uh, what we're probably going to end up with is a coalition, uh, not a coalition, a non-coalition, <laughs> an investiture, a, a, what's the word in English, a, um, an inauguration uh, of the, the popular party with this small amount in which the Socialist Party, under the pressure of Felipe Gonzalez, who's still hanging around as an eminence grease, yeah. will basically say, let them have their government. And, of course, this repels the younger left who says, right. are you kidding me? Yeah. My great party of the left is going to make possible yet another term of the right wing? Yeah, I would imagine that would turn a few people off. And it's a, it's a complicated thing for sure here. But, hey, you know, democracy with a small d is, is complicated. It's a very messy system. But I kind of like it. And, again, here in the U.S., we have the Electoral College whereby the votes from each state reflects the number of members of Congress, House and Senate, that each state has. Fairly straightforward. I understand the electoral power of Spain uh, it works differently, that it reflects urban and rural areas differently, causing some suggestions that it might be unfair proportionately. Could you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, this is something I've got to be honest with you. It's not uh, anything I fully have ever understood. But there's the the don't system, D apostrophe H O N D T, if memory serves. And it was a Belgian mathematician who came up with this system of representation when you had uh, parliamentary lists. And my understanding is that that, in combination with a continuation of of, of using the provincial system in Spain which after 1978 really has continued to exist but really doesn't have value, has given uh, larger parties advantages that they wouldn't ordinarily have. Now, it's been said that this system was devised or utilized or adopted in in the post-78 period precisely because they were frightened that we would go back to the Spanish Second Republic from 1931 to 1936 and have these fractious governments. And they wanted to make sure that there was something resembling a bipartisan system for stability in these years as they were trying to build democracy. So that system is still in place. And yeah, uh, from what I understand, again, I'm I'm no expert in it, it does make it harder for uh, smaller parties to get as much mileage out of their votes as as the larger parties do. Well, what about... uh urban and and rural there does does not the uh rural region have somehow more power that their votes are counted more than the urban areas I'm, I'm this is sure. what i understand again and that would be a very conservative yeah uh tilt sure because one of the old well. themes in spanish history is the idea of the two spains an urban spain versus a, a rural spain a, a secular spain versus a catholic spain oh, yeah we could go on and on, and, and so anything that would favor rural votes uh, would would be implicitly conservative. So right. We've got to remember that the transition to democracy in Spain that I spoke about earlier was very much a conservative operation, and what glued it together were a couple of things. Fears of a new civil war, mm. and what is often referred to as the pact of forgetting. If you think about it, uh, the socialists represented a left that had been obliterated by Franco, sent into exile, sent yeah. into prison camps, oh, yeah. sent before Brutal. for firing squads. Oh, yeah. And there was a lot of sentiment uh, in the 70s that, well, we need to deal with this problem. We need to talk about, as the Argentines have done in some measure, the issues of the crimes committed by the Franco government against the Catalans as part of the Spanish left, generally speaking. And that was never done. So the deal was, you shut up, I shut up, we'll pretend we're friends, and we'll get on with it, and we'll build a system. Hmm. And that worked as hmm. well. That worked well as long as the European adhesion funds were coming in, and as long as that spirit of consensus continued to exist. But in 1996, the son of the Francoist, Aznar, said, enough. I want to roll it back. And he began to roll it back, and the, and the, and the unraveling continues to this day. Unraveling. Uh, sounds like the Republican Party here in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, are they unraveling. My goodness gracious. It'll be interesting to see what happens after the election. And there have been calls, not very often here in the United States, for proportional representation. You know, now we have it so that, uh, you know, if somebody wins 51% or 50% plus one, he or she has the power, and the other nearly 50% doesn't. Have uh, is there any proportional representation in Spain with all those parties? If so, how well does that work, or is it part of the problem why there's no work in government? 
I don't think the electoral system is generally seen by most people as part of the problem. What you do have, party financing is seen as part of the problem. Ah. Media control is seen as part of the problem. And the Catalan issue is part of the problem. See, I don't want to stress the Catalan issue too much, but I think what goes on in the in the English language press is, and even the Spanish language press that comes out of Madrid, is that unless there's a solution to the Catalan problem, unless these people of the richest and most cosmopolitan part of Spain are given some sense that they are stakeholders in this Spain, then the political process is going to be very hard to put together again. Um, and, and that's what I think does not come out of most analyses we, we read here. There's a sort of love affair that the, the left has had with Podemos, um, but they never mention the intransigence of Podemos before the Catalan question. And uh, I think it's very, very important to talk about that. And it doesn't get talked about, especially out of the New York Times, uh, which, which, as you know, um, sets the tone and pace for so much international coverage in the United States. So I don't think the, the, the electoral system per se is something that people are up in arms about. They're up in arms about corruption. I mean, give an example of corruption. Yes, um, I was going to ask about that. <laughs> the corruption is just breathtaking within the popular party. Um, all of the people in the popular party were getting their salary as government ministers, and we're getting a over-salary paid for by the bribes that companies had paid to the, the party's uh, bagman. So they had an entire set of uh, uh, separate accounts, and basically you'd get an a, a envelope of money equaling your monthly salary each month on your desk uh, uh, as a minister of the popular party. This is called the so-called the Gertel case, and it's now finally coming to the light. But the ability of the press in Madrid to uh, minimize what this means for Spanish democracy or to minimize what I was talking about, the corruption in the Supreme Court over the Catalan case, where you had ministers in the popular government paying, basically saying semi-out loud, hey, don't worry about the Catalan statute. Our boys on the Supreme Court will take care of that one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, so that's what we're talking about. To be fair, there's also been corruption within Catalonia, which has been consequential, uh, but there's no moral equivalence to it. The big scandal in Catalonia was that Jordi Pujol, who had been the real father of the Catalan nation during the, the, the democratic period from 1980 to 2003 as the president of Catalonia, it was found out that his father, who had been a black market currency trader, had left money in a Swiss in an Andorran bank account to his children, and that Pujol had never talked about it. Pujol had never been suspected of being personally corrupt, uh, at least on the level of high spending for him. Uh, and this came out, and it came out during the move for Catalan independence. And many people believe that the Spanish intelligence services knew about it all along, and were waiting for the right time to spring it to. Uh, to have the, the, the nationalist movement lose prestige. And just speaking of that, uh, there's, a, there's a tape of the Spanish government uh, minister of justice last June openly talking with an official in the Catalan anti-fraud office about how they can dig up dirt on the Catalan leadership to, to, to discredit the movement.
and that's what that's the equivalent of the attorney general of the country talking with another guy openly about how they can uh, discredit the movement by using wiretaps to to get dirt on people. We're talking about Spain, not America, here, folks. And you know, <laughs> one thing I think a lot of Americans, left and right. You know, just have this sense that there is a lot of corruption. And let's face it, the American corruption, it strikes me that, you know, the big money basically owns the government. The lobbyists, mm-hmm. the, where they get their sources, uh, you know, uh, the, where they get their money, uh, the Citizens United case exacerbated, certainly, but, you know, a- allowing big money to have total control over the government. And it's led to a, a lot of different uh, uh, sentiments here. Anger, for sure. And there's populism on the left and populism on the right. It's kind of a a diffuse, uh, unfocused anger and populism. And it sounds like with, uh, you know, corruption being, frankly, so widespread there, is there, I mean, populism can be a good thing. It can be a very dangerous thing. Uh, What's your sense of, of any kind of populism uh, of the left and or right in Spain right now, and and its trajectory is it moving ahead? Is it gaining strength? I don't. As far as the right wing populism, you could make the argument that that the sort of authoritarianism that's implicit in in right wing populism yes. has always been there. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a line of continuity that goes back to Franco that kept kept its head down through the 80s and 90s, and then raised its head up again with Aznar's government and began to push back. But one of the delightful things about Spain in the European context is it is, I mean, it has its racism, but it is not a terribly xenophobic place. Um, Catalonia, if you you were there, Barcelona is a place that is, uh, for all the difficulties, extraordinarily welcoming still. To, to to immigrants. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Spaniards, most everyone who has, was from a Republican family, knows what exile means. Um, uh-huh. Spain, was, Spain was a place that produced uh, immigrants uh, up until the 70s. Yeah. You know, the Spaniards were the street sweepers. The poor Spaniards were the street sweepers in Geneva. The, the factory workers in the German economic miracle. Um... And so there's a sense that it wasn't that long ago that we were the people with the cardboard suitcases mm. fleeing desperately for our lives. And I think that runs through Spanish society and makes them very reticent about some of this, this aggressive populism. Mm. So that's the good news. That doesn't mean that the authoritarian mindset's not there, but um, that sort of grotesque, violent, let's beat up a person of color type of thing uh, you really don't find, and you, you especially don't find in Catalonia. On the left, the accusation, of course, is the people in the center and the right will will suggest that Podemos is exactly that, cheap left-wing populism hmm. with no substance behind it. Uh, you hear that often from people. Uh, for example, that's the way the Socialist Party treats them, in the way that Hillary Clinton treats the, the, the Sanderites. Uh, the mm-hmm. Sanderistas. Mm-hmm, um, so that would be your your closest thing to to to, to left wing populism. And I, I've got to I've got to say I've become a little bit cynical myself about what exactly uh, Podemos wants. Um, I wonder how much uh, 
steak behind the sizzle <laughs> is there sometimes. Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah, that is certainly uh, similar. The the image, the sizzle, you know, that's what sells things. And, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's problem, one of her many problems is she doesn't have a lot of sizzle, quite frankly. It's just not no. catching on, whereas, whereas Bernie uh, Sanders did. I wonder, you know, there's. I can't help but think that with so many people having gone through the terrible time of the Franco government, that there's like really not wanting to go back there. But I'm guessing there's still probably some who'd like to see a return of Francoism. How I, I assume there's like no danger of. Well, I'm hoping there's no danger of of a new. Uh, you know, nasty authoritarian government. What you're describing there is that people, you know, they're not racist, they're not xenophobic. Uh, is that is the concern about a, a return to authoritarianism? Is that gone? Is that really? Uh, no I don't around? think anyone. I don't think anyone wants that, even on the right. I think what the right under Aznar's tutelage has done that's been so clever is that they realized that they could have a lot of the same authoritarian goals met ah. by other means, um, by, by, media, by media manipulation. Uh-huh. So why engage in the heavy hand when you can do it with a light hand that, that works so well for you? I mean, I've got to give the, that devil his due. Jose Maria Aznar is a guy who really transformed Spanish politics, and not, not for the good. He modernized his party. He realized that nowadays we don't need guns in the street. We need constant media bombardment of messaging. He has set up, for example, a think tank called the FA, uh, FA, FAES, FICE, which is modeled after the, the set of neoconservative think tanks we have in, in Washington. And he has moved the political spectrum of the country solidly to the right. And... Uh, I don't want to harp too much on it, but Podemos, to the extent that they will not even think about questioning the idea of a Spain of nations, uh, is a tribute to how that orthodoxy has been imposed by the media machine. It's like Bernie Sanders' inability to address the problem of militarism and empire in the United States. I mean, I think Bernie did a great job, but frankly, I was waiting for him to say, uh, okay. What about the arms industry and the war industry? And he wasn't going to touch that because he knows the media machine will will savage him. Interesting. But but then again, can you actually make change happen in the absence of that challenge? (laughs) I don't think so, certainly. And and that's one thing that really concerns me about uh, Hillary Clinton. Very, very hawkish, certainly way more hawkish than Barack Obama. I think she's the most hawkish Democrat since Scoop Jackson back in 1972. I'll tell you, it's it's concerning, but you know we can't have have Trumpism. That's just you know racist. No. Obviously, we can't have that. I, I wanted to ask uh, uh, Thomas Harrington, professor of Hispanic Studies at Trinity College, what do you expect now for the future of Spain? More gridlock and stagnation. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it sounds like Podemos is is kind of missing the boat. The socialists are missing the boat. The right doesn't have control, but but the power of the media is certainly important. But what do you expect for the near term future of Spain? Well, again, my, the, 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 the Catalan question is, runs, looms large. Um, it's been a roller coaster watching the Catalan movement take place. And why do I say it looms so large in the Spanish? Because whatever happens there is going to have huge ripple effects. Um, and as long as this ironclad front against giving Catalonia more power exists, 
the level of alienation in Catalonia will continue to grow. Uh, for example, President Mas, who who had an informal referendum that took place uh, on November 11th, uh, 2014, he is now being brought up on charges Oops. that could uh, not go to jail, but uh, ban him from pol- political life for 10 years. Mm. These are things that, and he says, you mean to tell me you're going to send me to jail for having me put out ballot boxes in a democracy? And the more of this that the central government does, the more alienation takes place in Catalonia, and the more alienation, the more Catalans, both young and old, say, enough. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to talk about any longer. And so if, that, if they keep on using heavy-handed methods and don't make a deal, then Catalonia's going to go its way. And if Catalonia goes its way, everything else will be thrown into greater, uh, greater chaos. It will affect all of Europe, I would think, somehow, and us as well, because our economies are linked to greater and lesser degrees. Fascinating stuff. It'll be interesting to watch the future of Catalonia and Spain. Thomas Harrington, very interesting stuff. Professor of Hispanic Studies at Trinity College in Hartford. Thanks so much for sharing this uh, information about uh, an area of the world that's not that well known here in the currently United States, but uh, is, is kind of important. There's a lot of parallels, much we can learn from it. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, Bert, thank you very much. It's been a delight. Likewise. Spanish songs in Andalusia Just tune inside in the days of 39 Oh, please leave the vendana open The Drico lockers dead and gone Bullet holes in the cemetery walls The black car, the Johnny of the beer Oh my god, it's all